My father's no different than any other powerful man who's responsible for other people. I had this part in the picture. It puts me right back up on top again. This Hollywood big shot's gonna give you what you want. He says there's no chance. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. You know my father? Men are coming here to kill him. Now you want to get mixed up in the family business? I thought you weren't going to become a man like your father. I never wanted this for you. Freedom, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. Satan and all his works. I do renounce him. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. And today we are doing... The Godfather. Yeah. The Godfather. A movie we had to get around to sooner or later. It is the 50th anniversary of this film, which some people consider the greatest film ever made. We'll talk about that. But first, I want to say that this movie opens with a wedding has anything happened since the last time we did this podcast johanna you know it's funny as i was re-watching the film i had that thought of is is this what made you choose this um <laughs> yes i i got married about three weeks ago uh which is pretty insane i would say that my dress was as pretty, pretty princess as Connie's dress is in the film. And uh, I got married at a castle by the sea with a pizza truck. So all of the perfect factors combining together. And uh, so far, the marriage is still rock solid. Okay. How about you? <laughs> I also got married several weeks ago. It was also at a castle. This must mean something. I don't know what. <laughs> but. Which castle did you get married at? It was called The Castle. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's a uh, it's an old turn-of-the-century mansion, a stone mansion in Vermont. It was amazing. Very cool. First, let's do a background. Rosie's not with us today, so instead of a background of the year, I want to do something a little different. Strap yourself in. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm doing... A background to the mafia. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> was that a, was that sarcasm? No, it wasn't. No, I actually, I, I was hoping that you were going to explain exactly where this conciliary role came from or, you know, some of the ins and outs. Well, I thought about talking about the structure of the mob and, and which is basically there's one uh, head of the family who's, the boss and then there's an underboss who's the second in command and then there's this advisor position the conciliary uh and then under that there are the capos which are the captains and under that are the soldiers and all of those are called the made men those are the people who are in the mob and then they have below that associates and in general associates can be don't even have to be italian I didn't want to really get too deep into the structure of the mafia. Mm. Save that for Godfather Part 2. Yep. <laughs> but what I wanted to get into is the background on what exactly is the mafia. The mafia has been around in the U.S. since the mid-1800s. It's also known as the Cosa Nostra. 
which there is no direct translation to English from the Italian. The closest is something like our thing. It's just our <laughs> thing. Uh, it's a separate offshoot of the Sicilian Cosa Nostra organized crime. But there's debate as to how closely related these two are. Are they is one are they two separate entities? Is one controlling the other? Are they it's it's shady, like a lot of uh, underworld stuff. The word mafia comes from the Italian mafioso. Again, no direct translation, but the closest I can come is like swagger. Hmm. Which, if you imagine, I don't know, most of us, you know, saw John Gotti on trial. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's that swagger. Uh, it was not the only organized criminal enterprise in the U.S., nor was it even the only Italian one. But it's come to predominate to the point where the word mafia or mob has sort of become shorthand for organized crime in general. So the first reference we have to what we think is the mafia is the New Orleans Times reported in 1867 that the second district was plagued by, quote, Sicilian murderers, counterfeiters, and burglars. Hmm. Uh, we believe that's the first reference to them. In 1892, Giuseppe the Clutch Hand Morello emigrated to New York, fleeing a possible <laughs> murder charge in Corleone, Sicily. Hmm. Founded the 107th Street Mob, which later became the Morello crime family. They're known as the Genovese crime family today. So the oldest of the families. They were the first of five families that would come to dominate organized crime in New York City ever since. And by families, we mean a gang. They're not necessarily all related, although many of them are. January 16th, 1919, prohibition began in the U.S. And that's what really kicked the mob into high gear. October 27th, 1922, Mussolini had a march on Rome, coup d'etat, seizing power and cracking down on the mafia in Italy. That led to a large wave of Italian immigration to the U.S., and there was a lot of impoverished Italian-American immigrants that swelled the American mafia's ranks. In February of 1930, lasting till April of 1931 was what's known as the Castella Marie's War. And it broke out between two factions of the New York mob, the Masseria and the Maranzano factions. The Maranzano faction won, but that's not the most important outcome of this. The, it basically, the most important takeaway from this war was that it exacerbated tensions between what was called the Mustache Peets, which were the old Sicilian-born mafiosi. They believed in doing things the way they've always done things. And the Young Turks, which was the second generation of American-born Italian-Americans mafiosi who had a different vision for the future. As Rosie, if she was here, would tell us, is dramatized in the final season of Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> I want to I wanna comment on what you noted before about the mafia, you know, really clicking into gear here in the United States in response to prohibition. And then also this wave coming over as a response to Mussolini. What strikes me that's interesting about that is that the mafia is something that seems to, uh, you know, get stronger in the face of fascism, basically like, which, you know, you think of it as being, a totalitarian type organization itself. And so it's interesting seeing it that way as, you know, when the government shows strength beyond what they should, then this underside version of this shows equal strength, I guess. It's, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, but it's not that simple. Like, crime does not flourish in dictatorships. It's one of the few ways dictatorships are a better form of government in that there's very little crime. One example that comes immediately to mind is all the looting that happened uh, in, um, in Iraq after Saddam was overthrown. 
that would have never happened while he was there, like looting of archaeological sites, things like that. As soon as he was gone, boom, you know, all, all gloves are off, and they still are to this day. It's just one example, but it depends on whether or not you're in with the fascist party, right? Mm -hmm. As we'll come to see, the mob was on both sides, hmm. okay? And we'll okay. get to that in a minute. Uh, September 10th, 1931, Mustache Pete Salvatore Maranzano, now the boss of bosses, was shot and stabbed to death in his Manhattan office, and the Young Turks, led by Lucky Luciano, took over. So Luciano totally changed the way the mafia works. He proposed replacing the boss of bosses with the commission a parliamentary style governing body. Hmm. So it wouldn't always be like everybody's trying to kill one boss of bosses. There'd be this commission. The commission consisted of seven family bosses, Chicago outfit boss, Al Capone, Buffalo boss, Stefano Magadino. And once again, sorry about our pronunciations. I'm not Italian. And just like every time we do one of these movies, I'm like, <laughs> you know, ignore our pronounce terrible pronunciation. Anyway, those two, and then New York city, was the other big hotbed of mafia activity. And it was split between five families. The Luciano family, led by Lucky Luciano. The Mangano family, led by Vincent the Executioner Mangano. The Gagliano family, led by Tommy Gagliano. The Profacci family, led by Olive Oil King Joe Profacci. And the Maranzano family, now renamed the Bonanno family, led by Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno. <laughs> These same five families still exist to this day, albeit under different names. So those five families still control New York City un underworld. June 7th, 1936, Lucky Luciano is sentenced for 30 to 50 years in prison where he would have died if not for the U.S. Navy I don't know why there isn't a movie about this. There's so many movies that are about Lucky Luciano, but this one I haven't seen. The U.S. Navy cut a deal with him to avoid a dock worker strike in New York during World War II. What? <laughs> and they let him out of jail and deported him to Sicily in exchange for him coordinating the Sicilian mafia with the U.S. invasion of Sicily in World War II. So he was actively working against Mussolini and the Sicilian mob was working against Mussolini with the U.S. Allied forces to take over Sicily and then up the boot. Hmm. In 1936, with Luciano in prison, Vito Genovese became the acting don of the Luciano family. But fearing a murder trial, he fled to Italy where he became a supporter and ally of Mussolini. <laughs> he was actually giving money to the black shirts and... He was very involved in the Naples region, I think, um, with the fascists. Mm -hmm. Where at the other end of the Italian peninsula, the mafia was working the other side. August 7th, 1944, Vito Genovese is finally apprehended in Italy and taken back to the U.S. to stand trial. But on June 1st, 1945, the government's star witness dies of, quote, an overdose of sedatives, unquote, while in protective custody. Hmm. Hmm. Genovese was acquitted of charges on June 10th, 1946. June 20th, 1947, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel is killed by an unidentified gunman at the Beverly Hills, California home of girlfriend Virginia Hill. Siegel had built the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas using millions of dollars in mafia money, but the crime remains unsolved to this day. May 26, 1950, the Senate Special Committee to Investigate Organized Crime in Interstate Commerce, later to become known as the Kefauver Commission, opens hearings in Miami, Florida. If that sounds familiar, it's because we talked about the Kefauver Committee before. It's the same one that later investigated juvenile delinquency and led to censorship of comic books. I forget which episode that was that we talked about that, but we did. The committee hearings would continue in major cities throughout the country until August 17, 1951. And this is important. It was broadcast on live TV. Hmm. And although TV was 
still pretty rare at that time, it made the public aware of the existence of the mob, which in particular J. Edgar Hoover had denied existed for the longest time. Hmm. August 15th, 1952, Frank Costello walks out during his testimony before the Kefauver Committee, which is interesting because he got them to agree not to show his face. So this mobster is on, the whole time all you see is his fingers, like the camera's <laughs> on his hands. So uh, really ominous figure on TV. Um, anyway, he walked out and he's held in contempt of court and sentenced to 18 months in prison. April 11th, 1954, the Rome Daily newspaper Avanti runs a photo of a candy factory in Palermo with the headline, Textiles and Sweets on the Drug Route. The factory was reportedly established by Calogero Vizzini and Lucky Luciano in 1949. The evening after the story is published, the factory closed and the laboratory's chemists were reportedly smuggled out of the country. Police suspect that the factory was a cover for heroin trafficking. So now they're in the drug trade. And then August 25th, 1955, Meyer Lansky's Casino Internationale, the earliest of Havana's syndicate casinos, is taken over by Mo Dalitz. Dalitz? Dalitz, I think? Our Vegas listeners will know for sure how to say this. <laughs> He was a former bootlegger who told the Kefauver Committee, if you people wouldn't have drunk it, I wouldn't have bootlegged it. <laughs> Following the repeal of Prohibition, Dalitz had been operating illegal but protected casinos in Newport, Kentucky, then known as Sin City. And I threw this in specifically for Rosie and the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls, but after the Cuban government seized all the casinos, Dalitz moved to Las Vegas, uh, which he had been investing in as early as the 1940s, eventually becoming known as Mr. Las Vegas. According to the Los Angeles Times, many Vegas casinos, such as the Tropicana, the Flamingo, and the Jockey Club, could trace their origins to Newport, Kentucky. And I had to throw that out there because... <laughs> All your Kentucky listeners. <laughs> well, I was a teenage punk rocker that... It the jockey club still existed and I went to the, it became a punk rock club in, in the eighties. Uh, also, uh, the other two, the Tropicana and the Flamingo are there. I tried to go to one of those one time, but I didn't meet the dress code. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. I wanted to cover up to 1955 specifically because our film takes place between the years, uh, roughly 1945 to 1955. So I wanted to know what was going on with the real mafia from its origins in the U.S., in New Orleans, with, um, you know, uh, murderers, counterfeiters, and burglars up through the drug trade. So that's background to the mafia. Do you have a background to maybe the film for us? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I'll I'll start by um, just noting that originally the time period that this was going to take place in was the 70s, and that original versions of the script had hippies walking around in the background and it was Coppola who fought to change the setting to the 1940s even though it about tripled the budget of the film from a little more than two million dollars to six million dollars which still a bargain when you think about the legacy this film has had and that films during that time period made by Paramount roughly cost about $20 million. So The Godfather made at discount prices, even, even though Coppola had to fight to increase the budget for the time period. I think he made up for it by using a lot of handheld cameras. <laughs> so um, anyway, just if you can imagine this, this film being set in another era, I can't because as Eric pointed out, there's so much great history and and that the 40s and 50s is really when the mob legacy seemed to cement when people became more aware of it or really just before they were really becoming aware of it. So back to Coppola, I want to spend most of my time here because after doing some research, my image of who Coppola was completely changed. You know, 
we all think about the the Coppola who has now become a titan of the industry, who's founded his own, you know, Hollywood crime family with, you know, secret Coppolas all over the place, you know, including Nick Cage. So, you know, it's it's hard to go back and remember what he was like when he was 30 years old, just starting out, had only made one or two other films before and had this pivotal choice to make whether he was going to make The Godfather or not. So at this time, uh, Coppola was 30 years old. He just founded his own production company called American Zoetrope. Zoetrope is sort of an, an interesting fixture in the industry. Of course, now we think of it as the studio that made all of Coppola's films. It also brought in other great auteurs later on, like Godard, Kurosawa, Vim Vendors, and of course, George Lucas. So at this moment, Coppola had just made a musical comedy called Finian's Rainbow, in part to impress his old man, who was a big fan of musicals. And he was creating this studio to be a place where artists were treated with respect, where artists could drive the pictures and they wouldn't be controlled by a studio vision and a studio's idea of what was going to make money. So at this time, Finian's Rainbow had been made by American Zoetrope, and so had George Lucas's THX 1138. Those were the two films that they had made. Already, though, the funders who had given Coppola the money to start up American Zoetrope, namely folks at Warner Brothers, were already coming knocking saying, you're not delivering <laughs> on what you said you were going to do. So facing all of this debt, Supposedly, according according to Coppola's own account, George Lucas tells Coppola, hey, you know, I know you don't want to make this flashy mob picture that's based on a bestseller and is going to glorify and romanticize the mob, but we need the money. <laughs> so so Coppola takes on this project, takes takes on The Godfather. And in a second reading of the book, suddenly it clicked in for him what this was really about, that it's not just a, you know, a pulpy story with a lot of violence and sex and colorful characters, but that the whole story was really a metaphor for American capitalism. And he found a way in, he found a, a way to make the film have meaning, to make it resonate on a deeper level beyond just the thrills that were on the page. Determined to create artist-driven cinema, Coppola still held true to his vision of what this project needed to be, even when it pushed him up against a lot of studio heads, uh, namely Robert Evans over at Paramount. But Coppola had a couple really strong ideas of how he wanted this project to play out. I mentioned uh, shifting the time period as a major one, but a lot of it was with casting as well. From the very beginning, Coppola had in his head that he wanted Al Pacino to play the part of Michael. He'd only seen Pacino on stage on Broadway, and Pacino was basically a nobody at the time in terms of cinema, although he had a Tony under his belt. So he had proved, proven his acting chops, but generally was considered a runt. And a lot of the studio heads proposed other classic leading man types. For example, Robert Redford. If you could imagine this film, but with Robert Redford <laughs> playing Michael Corleone. Yeah, I can't. I mean, <laughs> I can see him as Tom the Consigliere, you know, the Robert Duvall part, but I mm -hmm. can't see him in any of the others. Like, he just doesn't even look vaguely Italian. <laughs> Yeah, and they thought about James Caan, who ultimately plays Sonny. Um, they thought about casting him as Michael also. But um, that, you know, once once Pacino became the front runner for the part, it became clear that the arc they were going for, which we'll, we'll talk about more later, really only works with someone like Pacino. Someone who is quiet, reserved, is, you know always second best, which is hard to picture right now. But when, you know, it's one of the things that makes this performance of Pacino's kind of unique in his repertoire. 
is it was before he became a star. It was when he was still trying to prove himself. Uh, the other major casting choice, of course, uh, Brando as Don Corleone. Brando had a reputation at the time for being extremely difficult <laughs> to work with. At the time? Like, <laughs> uh, when, ever, when, when did he not have that reputation? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it took a lot of convincing. But uh, Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, had also from the very beginning imagined Brando in the role and had actually written letters to Brando in advance saying, hey, if they make a movie of this, I want I want it to be you. Brando uh, had to sign some special paperwork basically guaranteeing that if his shenanigans caused the production to go behind schedule, that he was going to be responsible for the damages and I guess managed to please the studio heads enough where they got him signed onto the project. You know, that wasn't the only bump along the road for the production. Apparently, one of the other major obstacles they had was... Once the mafia found out that they were planning to make this picture and were planning to film it in New York, then suddenly, mysteriously, locations that they had secured would fall through at the last minute or permits that they had applied for would become, you know, suddenly rejected. Ah, you know, I don't know what happened there. In general, mobsters love this film. We know this because of wiretaps. The FBI and others have where they actually quote from this film. They reference this film. This film is well-loved among mobsters because supposedly there had never been a film that accurately portrayed the mob before this. They were all sort of the old Bogart and, uh, you know, those kinds of movies that that like were really um, stereotypical mobsters, you know, not realistic. So this film is very popular with the mob. But before it came out, when it was still in production... They were very worried about the light this was going to shine on the mafia. So they actually pressured the studio to remove all references to Cosa Nostra and mafia from this film. They actually never say the word mafia in this film ever or Cosa Nostra. And that's because of the uh, pressure put on them by uh, specifically the Colombo crime family, one of the five families in New York City. Well, and that may even be something that they guaranteed in exchange for being able to push this through. Coppola had somebody on his side who was not unlike the Tommy character from the film, uh, his lawyer, Sidney Korshak, who almost seemed to act as a fixer, conciliary kind of character and behind the scenes was helping to make all these problems go away. Among them, eventually getting clearance from the mafia to back off and let them make the picture. But also uh, there was a situation where uh, Pacino was already in a contract with another film and needed to get out of it. And Korshak apparently made the other producers an offer they couldn't refuse. So, you know, it's kind of funny seeing that behind the scenes stuff play out and imagine possibly this character having some influence on on this Tommy character in the film who seems to have similar powers of persuasion. Um, also want to talk about the cinematography. This is another area where Coppola had a very strong vision of what he wanted to do that seemed to go right up against what the studio had in mind. So you picture the wedding scene, which is a splash of full color in contrast with the interior scenes where Brando is, you know, wheeling and dealing and and accepting these requests for favors from people. And those scenes are so darkly lit. It was really unusual for the time to see that level of contrast between scenes, but also just to see anything that dark, period. And uh, you know, Coppola's original editor said it looked like trash. <laughs> the studios were really unhappy with it. And it created this sense of doubt in Coppola actually throughout the filming process that he continued to get a lot of this negative feedback. And he supposedly had a really miserable time making this film, even though afterwards it very quickly became apparent that this was going to cement his power in the industry and cement him as one of the great visionary filmmakers of that time. But uh, at the moment, he and his cinematographer were you know, committed to 
to fulfilling their vision of the film, despite what the studio heads were saying. And supposedly, uh, his his cinematographer, Gordon Willis, said that they had very different temperaments, even though they, they had a shared vision of how this was going to go. And Willis said, I like to lay a thing out and make it work with discipline. Francis's attitude is more like, I'll set my clothes on fire. If I can make it to the other side of the room, it'll be spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of director. I actually set set a, yeah, a cast member on fire one time. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was intentional. He was supposed mm. to be uh, in a fire. And uh, he uh, agreed to do it. He wanted to do it. He actually talked me into doing it. So we lit him on fire. <laughs> So how how many people did you have on hand with extinguishers? Oh, we were standing brigade? by right outside a frame with, with fire extinguishers, but yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I saw that quote and thought, yeah, that sounds like the, the Coppola I would want to work with. Um, but of course, you know, they were just three weeks into production. They were already talking about replacing him with Ilya Kazan. They thought he couldn't do it, but uh, Coppola kept making it work. Apparently, post-production was also a real nightmare. Coppola, having been submerged in all of this doubt for such a long time, actually came, the first cut of the film was only two hours long because he had been told by somebody like, you know, we're not going to greenlight it unless it's two hours. But then once he came to deliver the picture, they said, well, where's all the great footage that we we know you got? You know, what's what's up with this film? It seems like you only told half the story. And... So he came back with a longer cut of the film, and fortunately, he and the studio execs both agreed that this two-hour and 51-minute masterpiece was the version that they wanted to see. So it might have been a miserable production experience for Coppola, but 50 years later, it certainly doesn't show. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Coppola is notorious for being very precise when it comes to food and drink. I mean, he owns a vineyard, right? I remember, thanks to Apocalypse Now, specifically the documentary his wife made about the making of it, Hearts of Darkness, where you hear Coppola talking about the feast that they eat in one scene. Um, there's a scene where they are going up the river and they uh, they encounter a family of French colonists that have been there, you know, since long before the, you know, they, they're like, you know, we'll fight the Viet Cong. We fought the Viet Minh before them. You know, we the French will never be driven out of Vietnam, that kind of thing. Um, very John Melius type dialogue. But there's this banquet and it's French Vietnamese food. And I was obsessed since the time I was a teenager and saw that film with having French Vietnamese cuisine, which I couldn't get in Ohio. It was years later before I had it. But in this behind the scenes documentary, he's talking about everything down to like the temperature the wine needs to be served at. Now, this is on a movie set, right? Like <laughs> he's saying what temperature the wine should be in these glasses that are in the middle of a table during a scene, right? So that's how exacting he is about stuff like uh, having to do with food and drink. I could have gone with, you know, oh, let me teach you how to make some marinara. I could have done that, but I didn't. Because my favorite line from this film is... Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. And as I say on this show, this is a pairing. I always talk about what to pair with the film. And I swear to God, when I rewatched this this time, I was eating cannoli. So I am dedicated to what we talk about in the show when I try to pair it with things. Now, I didn't do a suckling pig when we did, um, you know, because <laughs> that was that was just to give you guys like a real Lord of the Rings type feast. But but in general, I try to practice what I preach. What I say on the show, I make and eat. Now, I am no pastry chef, so I cannot make cannoli or didn't think I could. And I know that a lot of our listeners face it, are nerds who aren't really that into the, like, um, you know, finer points of baking, nor do they have time. They want to get down to start watching because it's a three-hour film. So this recipe, I tell you guys, it's super simple. And I think I stole this from Martha Stewart. 
Um, so I'll, I'll give her credit there. Uh, I met Martha Stewart years ago, which is where I learned about this. You go to the grocery store and you get one of those, you know, ricotta cheese containers. They, they come in one size. It's like 22 ounces or something. Do not do this in a food processor. Get a mixing bowl. This recipe is maybe not traditional, but it uses uh, the mini chocolate chips, mm. the mini uh, semi-sweet chocolate chips. You dump that whole tub of ricotta cheese into your mixing bowl. Three quarters a cup of confectioner's sugar. Three tablespoons of those mini chocolate chips. And then three quarters of a teaspoon of vanilla extract. Three quarters of a teaspoon of uh, grated orange zest. So you just take an orange and you grate the zest mm. onto a teaspoon. Put that in there. And then a quarter teaspoon of fresh lemon juice. And then you mix that all up by hand. Just stir it until it's well mixed. And then here's the secret. Forget all that crazy shaping of dough and baking. Buy ice cream sugar cones. And then you just stuff the sugar cones with the ricotta. And in minutes, you have something that passes for cannoli. You know, a cheap budget like ice cream cone cannoli. And it's great. And saves you hours and hours of work in the kitchen, which is probably going to be disastrous because cannoli is super hard to make. A lot of grocery stores now sell what they call cannoli chips with the dip. And the cannoli chips are delicious and the dip is usually disappointing. So another option is homemade dip, pre-made cannoli chips. And of course you can do other things like take the ice cream cone once it's done and dip the whole thing into the chocolate chip morsels so one end is covered with them. Mm -hmm. Or more traditional, like just shake some powdered sugar over top of the whole thing. Yep. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. All right, let's get into the film itself. As I said earlier, it opens during a wedding in 1945. The Corleone family, Don... Vito Corleone, uh, played by Marlon Brando, is listening to people talk to him in his office with their particular grievances while there's a wedding going on. His daughter is getting married. So why at a wedding? Particularly his daughter's wedding. You're catching him on a day when he's in a very good mood. That he's found, supposedly, a good home for his daughter so that she'll be taken care of in a moment when he should be feeling grateful to someone else that this is a good time to ask him for a favor. This is a brilliant way to start the movie. And the reason why is, one, it throws out one of the most important themes of the film right from the beginning, which is family. It's a big family event. Two... You get to see all the major players in one place at one time right at the start. It establishes our dramatis personae. And if you're mobsters, you can't all be in one place and not be trying to kill each other unless it's something like a wedding, right? So it makes some kind of sense. And if all the mobsters are in one place at the same time, it's going to attract attention but not if it's a wedding. Although we did see and we did establish that both the law enforcement and the press show up at this thing in the beginning. And so this is important because we'll, it gets dramatized in this series later on, but in real life, we know that when a ton of mobsters meet, the FBI is there. So a wedding is the perfect place to conduct business like this because they're all going to be there. They have the perfect cover story for being in one place at one time, and then they can go in and work out their business inside, away from prying eyes, prying ears. A great one to start with is this funeral director whose daughter was raped, gang raped at that, and they got off with suspended sentences. When you hear the story, it really is a travesty of justice, right? So he comes to Don Corleone, and he doesn't want to get involved in this at all. You know, this is bad for business. But he eventually does. And he says, one day, and that day may never come, we'll ask something of you. One of the things that's really important about this scene, and Coppola talks about this in his notes. If you ever look and read the Godfather notebook, he's got some interesting notes on the wedding scene. The main purposes in this opening scene is to establish the breadth of 
Don Corleone's power, and then also to highlight his complex relationship with Michael. That those are the two things that need to happen in this wedding favor asking combo scene. But in particular, the scene with the funeral director, what's interesting is it starts out where he is trying to approach Corleone as if they are equals. He's trying to approach him, I'm coming to you as a father, and you are a father, and you know how I'm going to feel, and I want you to do this favor for me. And over the course of that dialogue, Corleone bends this man to his will and makes makes it very clear that if he's coming to ask for a favor, then he needs to bring himself down a peg. He needs to be the one who kisses his hand and keeps emphasizing, like, you weren't my friend before. You've done everything you could to avoid me and... You, you haven't invited me over for, for lunch. When was the last time I saw you? And they have cross purposes and motivation in the beginning, or it seems that way. It's almost like they're talking about different things, but then slowly it converges. And in the moment where the funeral director bends and kisses his hand, it becomes clear who has the power in this scene and in this community. I want to talk about uh, Johnny Fontaine. So Johnny Fontaine is where we get the name The Godfather here. Vito Corleone is his godfather. Johnny Fontaine is a young singer, and he is really upset because he's not going to be cast in this movie role, that he's trying to get moved from uh, music to movies. And even though Vito is his godfather, he's probably going to expect something later on for this. And we will see what that is later. But um, it's kind of important in the history of the mob and the behind the scenes story about this. So Johnny Fontaine is pretty much widely agreed to secretly be a representation of Frank Sinatra. In fact, it's such an open secret that it was Frank Sinatra that supposedly Frank Sinatra actually assaulted Mario Puzo in a restaurant once upon a time, mm. a long time ago when I was a child, over this. But he's, like a lot of characters here, he is a mixture. Like Vito Corleone is more or less Frank Costello, who we mentioned, uh, one of the Dons of one of the five families, but is sort of a mixture of a number of different mafia characters. Johnny is a little bit also Tony Bennett, because at least the opening scene is directly out of something that really happened, which was the Salvatore, I think it was Salvatore Bonanno, remember Joe Banana's family. Uh, mm -hmm. This is, uh, I think, Joe Banana's son, Salvatore, married Rosalie Profacci. Remember, the Profacci was another one of the five families. So this was really important because the son of one Don was marrying the daughter of another Don. So it was a big deal. And Tony Bennett sang at that wedding. Hmm. So that part was actually um, Tony Bennett. But it goes to show you that the mafia was already starting to get involved in the entertainment industry all the way back then. This leads to them making an offer he can't refuse <laughs> to this studio executive who will not cast Johnny Fontaine in a movie. This is widely believed to be the backstory to From Here to Eternity. One of the things that I found really amusing watching it this time around, now that I'm a little more involved in the film business myself, was seeing the analogy that they make in this film between the movie industry and the mafia. That this studio head who has this private vendetta against this actor is like, yeah, that part would be perfect for Johnny Fontaine, but he stole my mistress from me, <laughs> so I'm going to blackball him and make sure he never works again. And that he was so convinced of his own power in the situation and his right to be the godfather, basically, of that studio. It was interesting seeing that comparison being drawn within a film, especially given the backstory of Coppola's experience making this movie. To see that critique in there was really interesting. By the way, that studio head is supposed to be based on Harry Cohn, who was the founder of Columbia Pictures. And the mistress, there's a lot of debate as to who that is. I've heard Marilyn Monroe. 
I think one of the common ones that I've heard is Tuesday Weld. Hmm. There is a number of different actresses that it's speculated is that person, but uh, we don't know. Uh, Mario Puzo based a lot of this stuff on real stuff and changed the names. So one of the fun things about watching The Godfather is, especially if you follow true crime, is who are they talking about? What's this incident? And it's really fascinating. Uh, okay, so they, the the offer, the offer that you can't refuse, this has become, you know, the stuff of like movie trivia nights and all that, which is <laughs> what do they do to persuade him to cut the head off of his prize stallion and leave it in his bed? And then after that, you know, Johnny gets the part. <laughs> it's one of the things I think is most brilliant about this film. The slow introduction of violence throughout the picture. Of course, you know, it ends up being a total bloodbath at the end, but that's after like two and a half hours <laughs> of of film of it just being slow escalation and then very striking, memorable violence. So it, you know, moments like the horse's head and him be waking up covered in blood with the flies and that it's it's a very visceral, personal type of violence. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film is so memorable and so successful compared to other gangster films that preceded this. A lot of other gangster films, I mean, even thinking of parodies of gangster films, like Some Like It Hot, there's a lot of spraying of bullets all over the place, starting from the very beginning. And in this film, it sort of leads you in there so that you you don't become inoculated to the violence at the beginning of the picture. Each moment that it happens is really striking and and you feel it yeah and one thing that it's a theme in a lot of mob pictures but it's particularly throughout the godfather series and especially once michael takes over the family it's that violence is a means to an end but it's not always the best one and in fact all-out mob war is bad for business and business is what's most important you know I want to go back to the character of Tommy. Clearly, even from the very beginning, sticks out as someone who doesn't look like he belongs there. Each time I watch the film becomes more and more my favorite character. To have someone who is both an insider and an outsider in this story, I'm not going to say that he's our way in exactly, but you do get a sense from his character that he's someone who is a go-between between both worlds. He's the person who has to go to the studio exec. He's the person who is showing up at the last minute and knows the law inside and out and is someone that the cops listen to when he says, you can't do this. <laughs> and he's got some pull in the outside world too. His role in the organization is, is an interesting part of this opening sequence seeing how he and Don Corleone decide together, but sort of quietly together, whose request they're going to grant or not is an interesting part of the scene. Yeah, and the conciliary role is really interesting within the mob structure because it's not part of the direct hierarchy. You know, you have the boss and then you have the underboss and then it goes down from there. But a lot of people talk about it as the power behind the throne because in a lot of cases and I'm talking about in the real five families, the successor has been the conciliary. There's often a battle between the underboss and the conciliary who will take over next. Mm -hmm. The rules of succession say that it should be the underboss, but that's not always what happens because the conciliary has so much power. Interesting. I don't know if they showed it in this film. I can't remember, but supposedly Tommy, someone says he doesn't look Italian or something. He says, I... yes. He says, I'm Irish German. Yeah. But he speaks fluent Italian. And I think they put that in there to justify how he got into this role, which would normally be closed to non-Italians. Later on, in, when we get further along in mob history, that rule is going to change. But at this point in history, it would be very unusual for a conciliary to be, I mean, the name's even Italian, to be uh, non-Italian. 
we should talk about there is now a request at this wedding that is the request that really sets things in motion toward that eventual mob war. There's a drug kingpin, Solozo, who comes to Vito Corleone and wants basically his protection since uh, a lot of the politicians and stuff like that are in Don Corleone's pocket. In exchange, you'll get, you know, big profits from the drug trade. Don Corleone, who is the epitome of a mustache Pete in this, does not think this is a good idea. That basically, if they get involved in the drug trade, that will bring the kind of heat to them that they don't want. None of the politicians and people that they want protection from, it's a bridge too far, right? That they will not, they will lose all of the, that they've built up. And of course, Solozzo doesn't like this, and he is building support among other crime families, rivals to the Corleone family, because if he can't get it by coming to Vito, he's going to go elsewhere. And this is what sets events in motion. They're suspicious that Solozzo is going to be playing the, another mob against them. Specifically, they think the Tataglia family. Mm-hmm. And so they send their enforcer to go meet with them and, and they kill him. I don't know what they were thinking. Like this to me was like, did you think they would not know? I think that they thought at this point, they're just going to eliminate their crime rivals. And they're starting with the enforcer. And they later, very much later, they try to assassinate the Don himself. I wondered about that also. The other crime bosses talk about that Don Corleone is slipping, that he's showing weakness and things like that. In one viewing, I saw that as they're just making this up as a justification for the power grab that they're trying. But, you know, there's part of me that wonders whether they actually believe that and that that's one of the reasons why when they send Luca to go pretend that he's unhappy with the Corleone family and that he's looking for a new job, they see that as an opportunity for the power grab because they think it's a weak move and they're jumping on it as a, okay, we're going to take out this guy and there's a vacuum with Corleone not being at the top of his game. We can see that they're wrong <laughs> about that power vacuum later on, but at the moment it's maybe not such a bad move. Yeah, I think this is another expression of that Castle Marie's war that I mentioned earlier where there is a little bit of that undercurrent of the Young Turks, like, we got to modernize. You know, modernize means we get into the drug trade. Mm -hmm. We got to look at what the future, the future is in heroin, you know, or whatever. I think there is a bit of that. But also, I think they know that the next in line of succession is Sonny. Sonny's a hothead, and they're pretty sure they can manipulate him, and which they ultimately end up doing. They create this situation where someone who's married to his sister beats on her deliberately, we find out later, to piss him off so that he leaves and, and drives to go over there. And I guess they know that the route is going to involve him going on this toll road. They've blocked off the toll booth and they've got guys with Tommy guns in the toll booth. And as soon as they get there, they, they execute him. Which is a huge mistake for them because next in line is Michael. Now, we skipped a whole big part here, though, which is that Michael, when his father was in the hospital, saves him at the last minute because the cops are on the payroll of the other mob that is working with the drug kingpin. And at the last minute, he shows up, finds that he's unguarded, convinces a nurse to help move to a different room and then like gets his own people to come guard for the night. This pivotal scene where he makes that decision to go over there and, you know, steps up and really shows that initiative is part of this push pull that he has with his father throughout the film that Michael has to decide whether he loves his family more than he detests the way that they get their power and make their way in the world. He's determined in the beginning, I'm not going to be like my father. I'm not going to go into the family business. I'm going to do my own thing. But the draw of family, that his commitment to them is stronger than his own moral convictions. Yeah, and I think there's other forces at work here too, which is that this brings him into conflict with the police, right? And he ends up, 
basically killing a police officer. And, you know, you, mobsters can kill other mobsters, but if a mobster kills a cop, suddenly it's cracked down on on all the mob. So you you have your your favorite, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli scene. For me, it's this scene when Michael comes out of the bathroom and all you can hear is the subway noise. And just the the intensity of that moment that you as the audience know what the plan is. You know that he's supposed to go into the bathroom, grab the gun, and then come out blazing and just like shoot them right off the bat. And so when he doesn't, you have this moment of suspense as the audience, like, you know, is he going to do it? You know, and that you can see see the conflict there. And I think it's it, the scene is so well done in that way of if they'd had him come out guns blazing, it would have been pretty anticlimactic. It would have seemed inevitable and it would have made the rest of his journey in the film less interesting. But because we get to have that moment of conflict, that moment of suspense about whether he's going to go through it or not, it sets him on a different part of the journey for the audience. And also, you're still cheering for him, basically. Yeah. Like, yeah. he's he's still one of us. He's not, like, full-blown mobster. He's someone who is driven by a love of his father, by a love of the rest of his family. But, you know, maybe he's still not ready for this life yet. It's such a great moment. And the, and using the subway instead of a musical score is a genius move. Yeah, that is a very intense scene. And another one that supposedly based in real life. If there's one thing that I've learned from this film, it's like if there, everybody's like, let's meet on neutral ground and talk about this. Never do that because that means somebody's <laughs> going to get killed, right? Also, never get into a car. Never get into a car with anybody. Or without anybody. Don't get in a car. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to get to one of those getting in a car incidents here in a second because he goes to Sicily. And then I think this is the other force that shapes him because what's he going to do there? Practice American law in Sicily and rural Sicily? No. Basically, he's surrounded by mobsters, has no choice but to be a mobster because that's the only thing he can be there, right? So uh, this is where he meets... Uh, his first wife. He falls in love, eventually gets married to Apollonia. Then she's learning to drive and takes his car, which is a huge mistake because there's this attempt to eliminate all of the um, Corleone family. Someone plants a bomb in the car, the classic mob, turn the key and it explodes kind of thing. So he loses his first wife. And I think this is meant to be his like all in moment where he's just like, OK, that's it. Mm. Now he wants revenge. So he's all in. Yeah. Or I would even say it's a sense of his destiny has caught up with him that, you know, he he had this idea from the beginning that he was going to be able to forge his own path on the straight and narrow. But when it catches up with him there, he realizes there's actually no escaping this life for him. So if he can't escape it, then he may as well go all in. Oh, by the way, before we leave Sicily, there was slight reference to cooperation there because they're waving to the U.S. soldiers mm. as they're leaving, leaving the island or passing them or something like that. Yeah, there's also a great line in the Sicily segment where he says, like, where are all the guys? And someone says, the men are all dead due to vendettas. <laughs> And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like like an interesting, I mean, foreshadowing a little bit, but also just, you know, that he's seeing a different side of the world. I want to mention one other, like, it's kind of minor, but it's important in sort of a behind the scenes way of looking at this trajectory of the mob in general as dramatized through this film, which is Mo Green. Mm. Mo Green is uh, played by Alex Rocco, this Jewish mobster who is sent to Las Vegas, which is the new direction the mob is heading in. I just thought it was interesting. The last time we saw, or at least I saw, I don't know if you did, Alex Rocco was in Motorcycle. Mm. That was his first film. Alex Rocco was a legitimate gangster. The actor who plays Mo Green was a legitimate gangster. <laughs> he was part of the Irish mob. And after prison, 
he moved to California and took acting lessons from Leonard Nimoy. What? <laughs> yeah. And then he got his first role in Motorcycle, where he plays the husband who goes after the crazy bikers. If you don't remember that, go back and listen to our episode about Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, where we cover Motorcycle. In my head, I had always remembered the film as being like Brando wasn't in enough of the film. But rewatching it, he actually has a number of great scenes after the assassination attempt. One of them is the scene at the funeral parlor where we see him finally call in the the Chekhov's favor <laughs> from the beginning of the film. Uh, and the scene of him weeping over Sonny's body is another one of these great scenes where you know, in one shot, you can clearly see the morgue behind him. And then in another shot, it's just Brando silhouetted in front of this black background, weeping. And it's, it's just incredible shot design. I mean, really showcasing Brando's incredible performance. That scene, and then the meeting of the five families. And that's a scene I think we have to talk about. Yeah, uh, one thing I... I... I think it's very interesting is that whenever someone becomes indebted to the mob, you know, you always think it's going to be this big thing where they're going to have to kill someone or do something really, you know, horrible. But a lot of times it's not. The mob knows where your strengths are, right? So like the baker is expected to bake a wedding cake. Mm -hmm. The funeral director, like when someone gets completely riddled with bullets, we want you to, to fix them up for an open casket funeral. You know, that is the favor you're doing back for us. You know, it's something that makes use of the person's talents, you know. Um, so uh, I thought that was very interesting is that, yeah. you know, because you're always like, what's this guy going to have to do? You know, it's going to be really serious. And then it turns out his job. He just has to do his job. <laughs> well, for free, but also it's a really big job, you know. Yeah. This completely bullet-riddled body needs to be, like, made presentable for an open-casket funeral. So let's get to the meeting of the five families. This is something that supposedly happened in real life. I mean, the five families meet every five years, I think it is. Every few years. Maybe every three years, every whatever. Supposedly, mm -hmm. again, we don't know for sure, but we know a lot more ever since Sammy the Bull Gravano who I think was an underboss. He's the one that that ratted out John Gotti yeah. in the 90s, ever since he came forward. And, well, he has a podcast because, of course he does. <laughs> Everyone who the hell has does, a podcast. Yeah, who the <laughs> hell doesn't have a podcast these days? They let us have a podcast. So anyway, he, he dishes on all this stuff. So that's how we know that the five families meet every few years. This is one of their meetings. And the big issue on the table is the drug trade and Don Corleone refused to go along with this and you know he makes his case while he is often shown to be perhaps the most powerful of the mob bosses it's still a parliamentary thing and the rest decide okay look here's the rules we're gonna do this because everybody wants to do this except your family so we're gonna do this and it's gonna be no drug dealing to kids, no drug dealing in Italian neighborhoods. In fact, they specifically target black neighborhoods. Yeah. Ugh. This film came out in 1972. <laughs> it's just, it's a very interesting moment. You know, I mean, we're, we're looking back on it now from, you know, 2022, 50 years later, and seeing it as the mob is part of this problem also of creating this structural racism, basically. But imagining the film coming out in 1972 when coming off the 60s, when drugs were just starting to be more readily available and widely used by everybody. It's interesting to place ourselves back in that moment and seeing this line. Maybe they would have seen it as even more fucked up <laughs> than we see it right now. Spoiler alert. Let's talk about the end. This is one of the things I think is so brilliantly done because of course in the book it rolls out more or less in a linear narrative but one of the great things you can do with film in a more effective way is the intercutting which they do in this scene and apparently when they shot the scene with michael at the baptism taking on the role as godfather to his sister's baby 
they got to shoot that scene like five times from different angles. They had like a crane, like, you know, this, so there's tons of footage of that, but they only got to do the shoot em out scenes like one take for each one. So they didn't have nearly as much footage. Well, once you explode squibs and once you like use special effects, it's very hard to reset them. Oh, exactly. I know this from working on movies. You try to cover it with as many cameras as you can because a lot of cases you may only get one shot at that. Yeah. The baptism, on the other hand, they've got all the time they want. They have lots of access to the baby because you know who played the baby? No. Sophia Coppola. No way! In her first appearance on film. That's hilarious. So she's literally spent her entire life working in film. Oh. So the intercutting there is genius, especially the lines of like, do you renounce Satan? And you you get all of that dialogue from the baptism with the shooting in the background. It's a genius way to save a little bit of runtime in the course of a long film, but also that juxtaposition is extraordinarily well done. And I think you see how deeply the mob lies even to themselves mm. and to their own family, because he's saying that he's going to reject Satan and all that, while meanwhile he's having people killed and stuff like that. And Kay says to him, tell me it's not true, tell me it's not true. And he eventually tells her it's not true. But in that final scene, as the camera pans out from the office and all the other mobsters are meeting and talking with him, we can tell... It's true. Mm -hmm. He has become a lot more amoral by the end of this thing. We provide you with all this entertainment. <laughs> we provide you all of these services. And all we ask, all we ask is that you rate and review us. And I know you guys aren't doing that because I can see the download numbers versus how many reviews we've gotten. So either we don't even ask for money. Right. We don't have uh, Patreon or any of that other stuff. We don't have advertisers, nothing. So you're, we're giving you all this free entertainment. All you have to do is go give us five stars and a review on your podcast platform. Or even better, just directly get somebody else to listen to it. Tell somebody else about the podcast, convince them to listen to the show, uh, whatever you got to do. If you want to talk to us, you can write to us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. <laughs>